Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 100. I spent the last couple of weeks trying to figure out exactly what to do for episode 100. And it dawned on me that episode 100 as a milestone is probably a lot more important to me than it is to you. You know, it could be 101 or 105 or whatever. But to me, it's kind of a milestone. And so I was trying to think of something, you know, kind of unique that I could do and extra special for episode 100. And I had this crazy idea that I was going to look in the phone book and look up a psychic and then go see the psychic and get the psychic. I would bring along my autographed bill, the napkin that I had autographed by Bill Monroe. And I'll bring that and get the psychic to channel Bill Monroe from the other side and get channel his spirit and, and see if we could find out what Bill Monroe thinks of the current state of bluegrass. Anyway, I looked in the phone book and there was no psychic in the America's phone books. So I, I scrapped that idea and I'm just sitting around here scratching around and I ran across an old newsletter. Back in 1984, an organization formed in the Atlanta area called the Southeastern Bluegrass Association. And I was right in there at the very start of this thing. I believe they got started up in late summer or fall of 1984. Well, I was in the printing business. That was my day job at that time. And they wanted to put out a quarterly newsletter. And in fact did, and, and I ended up raising my hand and getting involved on the news, on the, uh, on the SEBA breakdown staff for their, their newsletter because they needed somebody to typeset it and print it and, you know, create the half tones and, you know, this kind of stuff. And, you know, I had the print shop, so I got involved in the newsletter in those early days. I think maybe for the first three years, I probably. Uh, typeset and, and actually printed and ran the printing press and the folding machine and the stapler. And, and anyway, produced this thing called the SEBA breakdown. Well, in the summer of 1985, they were looking for people to contribute articles. And I had a friend of mine who had a guy named Buddy Ashmore who had, who I had run into in the, in the first few months after I began to play bluegrass. I, I walked into a music store and there's this guy walked in with a big cowboy hat on. And next thing I know, he had invited me to a picking session. And I, I told this story, I think back in the, in the podcast called a partner in crime. And I told some of the stories about buddy. Well, I did an interview for him with him in the summer of 1985 and it was printed in the SEBA breakdown. And I spotted that thing laying around the other day. I was digging through a box and I, I found summer 1985 volume two, number two. And on the cover, it has a, a photograph of this little old log cabin. Well, that was buddy's cabin. He had found this cabin somewhere like down in Dublin, Georgia, and had purchased this old log cabin and dis 
dismantled the whole thing, numbered all the logs, and he and a friend loaded that thing into a truck and moved it to his property in Jonesboro and reassembled that old log cabin, and that became the Pickin' Parlor. It was Pickin' Central. Everybody, certainly everybody on the south side of Atlanta, has picked in Buddy's cabin at one time or another, and I just thought that would make an interesting tale. So I interviewed him for the newsletter, and that was a long, long time ago. But it's it's it struck me as funny. We're going to, here in just a few minutes, we're going to get to my current interview with Buddy Ashmore that I did over the phone just a, a day or so ago. But I found it interesting that some things just never change. Way back then in 1985, in, in the course of this interview of talking about how he got started and telling all about the cabin and all this kind of stuff, I got around to this question. And I said, I know you're a big Tony Rice fan. How'd you get hooked on Rice? And he answered, he's the greatest picker. He's the best. I guess, you know, you listen to tunes. And if you're a guitar player, you listen for the guitar breaks. When I heard him play and heard the breaks he made, I thought, well, I wonder if I'll ever be able to do any of that. But I don't guess I will. He said that in 1985, and that was printed in the summer 1985 SEBA breakdown. And I just thought it was interesting. As I get into this um, call with Buddy Ashmore, we get down towards the end of it, and you can tell he is still a huge Tony Rice fan. Anyway, let's just go straight to it. Uh, Buddy Ashmore, by the way, lives in Jonesboro, Georgia. He's a guitar player and a singer. He dearly loves bluegrass. And he is 82 years old, and I always keep track of that because he was born in 1936, which is the same year that my mother was born in. And that's how I'm able to always remember that. So anyway, I just got to thinking, I'm going to call Buddy on the phone, and I'm going to record an interview with Buddy. And I hope you enjoy this. He is uh, quite a storyteller. Speaking of stories, I, I want to you to tell the story of I think you went to Livonia you and probably um, Roy Keaton Bill Mann Bill Mann and I think your brother Eddie and you told this story about the pop-up camper in the middle of the night about what Eddie did and I don't know, because I, 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 I wasn't there. I, I was not there at this. This was a little bit before you and I started hanging out. But you told that story multiple times, and it never changed one bit. And I always thought it was the funniest thing I ever heard. The only thing, the only thing I think about is when we was up at Delonica one time. Well, maybe and, it was and, Delonica. And that, that little pop-up camper in the 80s. And, Eddie and and, uh, and his son, Scott, came up there, and we was already in the bed. Yeah. And Eddie got up to the camper. Let me interrupt you, uh, if I may. Uh, anybody that knows Eddie Ashmore knows he is a weightlifter, and, um, and he's a, yeah. he, he loves to work out. He's got the muscles. I mean, your brother is a muscle man. I, in fact, mo every time he's ever showed up at a gig, 
And he's come to a lot of Pony Express things. And Eddie will come up to you and uh, stick his hand out and shake hands. And I'm always afraid because he will break your hand, especially if you got a ring on. If you got a ring on <laughs> your right hand, I mean, you can't hardly play the mandolin after after you shake hands with him. He's he's got a powerful, powerful grip. <laughs> ain't it? Ain't that right? Uh, yeah, and and you know he was bench pressing. He was bench pressing three hundred pounds when he was right at seventy years old. <laughs> you know, one thing I just discovered the other day. I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it's called Groon's Vault. George Groon has a podcast, you know, the instrument dealer up in Nashville, been around yeah. forever. He interviewed Bobby Osborne, and they had about an hour-long conversation. And I swear, buddy, Bobby Osborne sounds exactly like your brother, Eddie. He does. I mean, they sound like they grew up in the same house. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie's got a real dry. He, he, you can't ever get anything on Eddie. <laughs> Do you remember that time in you was coming back from um, somewhere down south? We had been somewhere. Probably Cochran. Yeah, yeah, coming back from Cochran, and we got on some storytelling, and... We was riding up the up the highway, and, and I was telling you about growing up with the Eccleses. <laughs> oh, yeah. And 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 how we, neither one of us had anything, you know. We were both poor as dirt. They were poorer than we were, you know. And you talk about it. On that back porch, up there next to they lived next to my grandmother on old Dixie up there. And, and, of course, you know, when I wasn't at home, well, we were up at the Eccleses. And uh, just, I, we was in high school before we realized we wasn't brothers and sisters. <laughs> we would, you could walk out on that back porch, and the back porch was was up on the second level of that old house, a big, you know, high off the ground. And, I mean, you'd have to watch where you walk, or you'd fall through the porch. It had holes in the back porch. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, that just, uh, they didn't have anything. And, and I, you remember I told you that, that, that I would go up to this place called the Villa Venice. It was a little, it was a little, not a nightclub, but sort of a roadhouse type thing, bar, uh, place where my mother and daddy would go up there sometime and they'd get them a booth back in the back and, and you'd put money in the jukebox and people would get out there on the dance floor and dance. <laughs> and they'd get me to stand up on the up on the up on the table and sing. And I don't know what I I don't know what it was that I'd sing, but anyway, and they would give me a nickel for dimes or something like that. And I'd come home with a pocket full of nickels and dimes and boy, I thought I was rich. First thing I do the next morning, you know, when I'd get up, I'd do whatever I had to do, and I'd hop on my bicycle and I'd head down to Elvin Adamson's store with my pocket full of change and get me about two penny, you know, little, little penny sacks that you yeah. that you used to have, little small sacks. Yeah. I I just go through there and and with my with my pocket full of money, and I'd fill up two of those penny sacks full of candy. Boy, they were those little kits and those. 
in those little little, little wax bottles of juice, you know, <laughs> and those big old red uh, artificial wax lips, you know, that you put in your mouth, <laughs> and it looked like a big old fat lip, and and um, and uh, suckers, uh, uh, just everything, uh, Tootsie Rolls, and everything was a was a penny. And so you could go down there and for, for 15 cents, good gracious, you could fill up two of those little penny sacks full of candy. And I'd go and get on my bicycle, and I'd have to take those sacks. And I couldn't, couldn't carry them in that, I don't think I I don't know if my pants had pockets or not, but I'd, I'd wrap those tops of those sacks around the handlebars, you know, <laughs> where I could hold the sack and I could still hold the handlebars. <laughs> so I'd wrap the top of those sacks around the handlebars and I'd ride my bicycle up. It's about a, equivalent to a city block. Back up the sidewalk, old Dixie Highway, and I'd pull into the echoes of the driveway, and there was Big Skeet, Nicky, and Richard, and Dean, and, and Peggy. All of them would be out, out in front yard doing something, playing. And it had a concrete wall about a foot, a foot and a half high that went down the edge of the, 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 the yard. And so that first thing you do when you pull up and you hop off your bicycle, you just drop it, just lay it down on the ground, you know, and didn't have a kickstand. <laughs> but you just, I pulled up and dropped my bicycle, you know, and, and so they come, they saw I had these two sacks. And uh, so that right away, that stirred their interest. Oh, what's he got? He got some candy or something. So I, I sit down on that on that concrete block wall and I sit one sack down my side then I got that other sack out and I reached down in there and I found me a little package of those kits I think they called them the little taffy type squares and so I pulled one of those things out and unwrapped it and unwrapped the other little that there's about three quarters of an inch square little taffy type things you know and I took that thing out, and and they were standing around watching me. And I put one of them in my mouth, and I started chewing that thing. And you chew, and you chew, and you chew, and it's sticking to your teeth. And you chew, and <laughs> moving it around where you can chew it. And after a while, it starts chewing real good. And I looked up, and every one of them was looking at me while I was chewing and jaws, every one of them's jaws was going up and down, chewing with me while I was chewing it, while I was chewing that piece of taffy, you know, they, they was chewing right with me. <laughs> and, and so then I just opened up the sack and then handed it out and you know, it was just, we'd, we'd sit there, all of us eat every bit of that candy. <laughs> I thought you were going to die. You got the life of 
you to roll around in the front seat of the truck rubbing your belly and laughing. And we got to think about what these people think about when they ride by us and see us over here dying, laughing like two hyenas or something. Just, those guys are crazy. I remember that. We had to pull off at a gas station. You had to just let me out, and I just got to roll out and... Next to the gas pump, so I was just staggering around, just laughing and carrying home. And you let me calm down, then we got back in and kept going. If you don't like my peaches, get out of my tree. Get out of my orchard, Lord, let me be. But Nash is gone, I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of the world. He had 
had hair that was about an inch and a half long, and it stood straight up all over. He could, it was so unruly and stiff and wiry. And the guy had, had, had to wear glasses and he was, he's probably legally blind, but his glasses looked like the bottom of Coca-Cola bottles. They was about a quarter of an inch thick, you know. Well, old Jack, he had to wear them glasses for as long as I can remember. And, and, Jack was just as country as the rest of us, you know. Well, his bicycle was just about as bad, too. So we had been coming down that hill and jumping that ramp. And and we, when you leave the ramp where your back wheel hit the ground, that's where we would mark it. And then we were seeing who could jump the farthest. Well, old Jack, he said that we, Jack's turn to, to go, so he hopped on his bicycle, you know, and how you when you pedal real hard, how you how your bicycle sways from left to right, you know, when you're really pedaling hard. Well, that's why Jack took off, trying to make the back tire spin, you know, when he was pedaling. He made it up to the top. Old Jack got up to the top and turned around and checked everything out real good, you know. He was all standing there, had the, had the ramp all fixed. Make sure everything was just right, you know. So we, everybody standing over on the side of the road, and somebody was down a little ways from the ramp to mark the distance. So we waved Jack on down, come on down. So old Jack, he hunkered down, you know, and he took off on that bicycle. And you know, that old bicycle was going from side to side, side to side, from him pedaling so hard, getting up all the speed that he could get. And I, I bet he had to be running 30 miles an hour when he when he hit that ramp. And when you hit that ramp, the first thing you do is, is you when you leave the ramp, you snatch up on the handlebar real hard, so your back wheel will hit before your front wheel. If your front wheel hit first, you just tumble, you know. Jack hit that ramp, and that thing left it. When he left the ramp, he snatched up on that handlebar. When he did, the front wheel, he just, the front wheel came completely out from under the front forks, just left it. And there was Jack sailing through the air, and that ground wheel out in front of him already started down the hill. And Jack hit the back wheel, hit, and after the back wheel hit those two forks, dug in that old hard Georgia clay and stuck, and Jack went in over in, bicycle over Jack, Jack over the bicycle. Jack wound up in a ditch, probably about 25 or 30 feet down from the ramp where he left, laying in the ditch, skin up, scratched up, Glasses hanging off of one ear, you know, <laughs> getting up saying, how far did I go? <laughs> <laughs> and all of us, all of us guys, you know, it was so funny. We ran over there and we saw it was all right. Everybody was just rolling down on the ground, rolling around, laughing at Jack. <laughs> all Jack wanted to know was, how far did I go? <laughs> how far did I go? Oh, my God. You know, you just, you, 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 it, it's hard, it's hard to describe those things. You, you can see it. I can see it as plain as anything. And that's the whole
car. He gave me that old 35 Chevrolet, and the first thing I did is I wanted to make it look like a stock car or a racer or something. So I pulled the fenders off of it, and that was the ugliest piece of junk that you'd ever seen in your life. <laughs> and, and, and a buddy of mine named Riley Jones had me put twin exhaust on that six-cylinder motor in that in that 35 <laughs> and i drove all over those streets the, the road back behind our house on down that big hill like we previously talked about down that road was was just cut up subdivided you know but they never built any houses down there evidently they they just went bust. but that's where i learned how to drive is on those on those subdivided roads, gravel roads, and on Conley Road, which was dirt, and all back in there, oh, I knew them like the back of my hands, and every dirt road that I could get to, that's where I drove, and where I learned how to drive, and we'd slide around corners, and get out in the field, and cut donuts, and all that stuff, <laughs> and I asked my stepmother one day, I says, uh, I I wanted to have some reason to go somewhere and 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 drive my car, you know. I think gas was probably 25 cents a gallon. And so I asked Ed, and I said, you need anything to, from the store? And she knew what I wanted. She said, yes, yeah. you can go get me a loaf of bread. I said, okay. So I went out there and hopped in my car, and I got in the car, and I fastened my old seatbelts that come out of a military, some airplane or something. I fastened my seatbelt, and my old dog sport, he got back in the back in the rumble seat. And so as I cranked it up and backing out, I was thinking, now, you know, I wonder what it would be like to drive on a nice, smooth, paved road. And it's and it wasn't but about a block, probably a hundred yards, it probably a hundred yards from my dirt street. Once you got on Old Dixie Highway, it wasn't but a hundred yards down to Elvin Adamson's store where I where I was going to go get the 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 loaf of bread. Well, I could have gotten to it going the back way, the dirt road, because they come out right at Elvin Adamson's store, the back roads. So I decided I wanted to see what it was like to drive on that paved road. So I eased up to cranked up and I went on up to the top of the hill, down the hill to Old Dixie, and I looked to the left and wasn't a car in sight. I looked to the right up toward Hapel, not a car in sight. I waited and I looked, wasn't nothing coming, so I eased out on that old Dixie, and I shifted in the seconds, you know, and man, it was so smooth. It was like I was driving a Cadillac. It was so smooth. I was just in heaven. And as I got on down about halfway there, I knew that you were supposed to give a hand signal to straight out your arm, straight out the window if you're going to turn left. And if you're going to turn right, you stick your arm out the window and point up, you know. So I stuck my arm out the window, and there I was. I had one arm out the window and one hand on the steering wheel. And as I... As I was so, I was 
slowing down to, to, to turn into Ellen Adamson's store, and this car must have got impatient behind me because I was going so slow, and he wanted to go around me. So even though I had my arm out the window that I was turning left, he passed me on on, on my on my way into turn, you know, with my arm out the window, and I almost turned into him, you know. Well, that that sort of that, that sort of startled me, you know. And after he went around, well, I was almost past Ellen out of the store. And so I just turned in, and I turned right in front of a Georgia power truck. And he, I remember seeing that truck. He had to lock his brakes down, and I saw the back of the truck raise up, and the tires were sliding and yeah. smoking. And, and, and that scared me even more because I almost got hit by pulling in front of somebody being doing the dumb thing that I was doing. And so right next to Evan Adamson's store was the nightclub called the, the Lido Club or the Savoy Club, something, one of the two. And it had a big gravel front parking lot set off the highway, probably 100 feet or more. It had a big parking lot out in front and the Elvin Adamson store was a little bit closer to the highway. Well, as you pull in the Elvin Adamson's, you, you just pull right onto that parking lot. But when I turned in, I was past Elvin Adamson, so I, I wound up in the, in the old gravel parking lot. And then I looked behind me and right behind that Georgia power truck was a Clayton County police. <laughs> And so I got scared, and so I started grabbing gears and pulled that thing back down in low gear, and I took off, and it started slinging gravel, and and those big old loud exhaust on it was a bellowing, you know, and and sport was barking and all that stuff, and so I took off down on side roads, and I I took off. But then, I don't know the name of the street. It might have been Geneva Street. Down that way. To got down to the first road, I turned to the left, and I slid it in that corner. And I was just tearing out, slinging gravel and sliding all over the place. And I looked in my mirror, and here come that Georgia power truck sliding and getting sideways, coming around that corner. And the police car was right behind him. And I got up to the next corner and turned to the right. And I kept going all back zigzagging back through those back roads and finally lost them and had to go down and cross old dixie highway down further down on a dirt road and ride around and it did a big round circle wound back up and i come in the back way and i went down and pulled in from the back come in the back way and pulled my car down in a little shed we had down behind the house and covered it up with a canvas and walked to the store and got the loaf of bread. <laughs> Fishing River, front deep and wide, that gallop mine long, she's on the other side. But now she's gone, I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of her. I was scared that I was going to come after me. I remember when I was working for Mellow Mushroom and we did the 
uh, Harvest Festival down in Fairburn, Georgia, and yeah. Tony Rice was there playing with Peter Rowan. I think they had right. him billed as Peter Rowan, you know, and and his band. But Tony was there, and it was cold. Oh my God! Cold as it was cold, and I was down there the whole weekend with the pop up camper, and. You come down there, and David, you and David both came down. And uh, Vassar, I just remember me and you. Well, David was... I don't was, remember David being there. Well, he was there. Um, I don't know if he was there both did nights. Didn't he play with somebody on stage? Well, all three of us did. All three of us, they had two stages. They had what they called the, the main stage, and then they had another stage called Cuckoo's Nest. And that was where they were doing the more bluegrassy and the acoustic-y type stuff. And it was kind of down in this little, they had hollowed out a little place in some planted pines off to the side of this place. And they built a stage down there. And you and I got up there that night playing with Bobby Miller. And Bobby Miller's band was playing. He he asked you and me and David to get up with him, and we started playing. And then they had the Dobro player over there, and it turned out it was Curtis Birch, who is everybody knows is from the Newgrass Revival. We didn't know who he was. We just thought he was this Dobro player. And you got up and did sitting on top of the world and. And uh, David was playing, and that was over on that little side stage. But I, I think later on, you know, Rowan was playing on the main stage, and John Cowan was there, Vassar Clements was there, and a lot of hippie jam bands and stuff. And it yep. was freezing cold. I mean, it was bitterly cold and windy, cold. and had been raining. On top of that, it had rained for two days. So it was really muddy, and then it turned cold. As that front moved through, it turned cold. Well, that's when a a truck, or it might have been a car, came from Mellow Mushroom, who I work for, and I had called them in uh, the nearest location and said, make me 20 large pizzas, mix them up, you know, as far as what you put on them, and we're going to take those backstage, you know, for the performers. We were a sponsor of the of the festival, the Harvest Festival. That yeah. was a, a T-Dog event. Um, anyway, so Mellow Mushroom had a banner across the front of the stage, you know. And so I called the nearest location and said, make us 20 extra large pizzas and send them over here. And we're going to take them backstage and give them to the performers and, uh, you know, send the bill to corporate and that kind of thing. So the guy showed up with the boxes of pizzas and you and David were standing there. I was like, grab some of these pizzas and help me take them backstage. And so we went on back from my pop-up camper where they met me back to the back of the stage. And if you want to get into a, backstage at a festival all you have to do is get 10 pizzas and stack them 10 pizza boxes up and hold them 
and just come walking up there and say, I'm supposed to take these up there, and they will let you through. They're not, you know, they're not going to stop you because they would have to carry the pizzas. So I gave half of them to you, and I had the other half, and you and I went back around the back of the stage and went up the little staircase, the little that they had built the weekend before, carrying these pizzas up there. And if I'm going to turn it over to you at this point, and this is right before Peter Rowan and Tony Rice were going to go on stage. And, and I have a, a, a copy of a picture that we took that night, but you and I brought the pizzas up there. And do you, do you remember all that? And can you pick it up from there? So 
he picked him out a pig that and looked at him and said, that's, that's real nice. I really appreciate that. And I said, well, just happy picking, you know. And, and so he said, oh, by the way, he said, just go through that off down those stairs there across the stage and downstairs. Tony's downstairs in the in that room downstairs. And I tipped my hat and told him I appreciated that. So then I, in turn, I went on down to downstairs and Tony and Wyatt and, and Goodrow and some of those other guys was down there. And Tony was sitting over on the sofa doing something, you know, and I think they had a bunch of food out. And so I had this article or I think a picture of he and I, and I said, wanted Tony to, to sign that picture. And, and I had another tortoiseshell pig for him. So he, he took it and he said, signed it. And he had a real fancy, free-flowing signature. It's almost hard to read, but it's real nicely done, you know. And so I give him that. That uh, He signed my picture, and I gave him that pig. He picked out a pig and uh, thanked me for that. And so that was my second time of actually uh, getting to speak to Tony or talk to him or anything. And, I would put him at number, uh, a, a tie for number two, because Bill Monroe has to come first and Earl Scruggs. I put Rice right in there. I mean, Rice. But as far as, as bluegrass guitars, he'd be number one in my book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think any guitarist would argue with that. But I want to go back to that night where you had the picture taken that you later had Tony sign. And I just remembered a little differently. You know, you came up there and you remember giving him the pick, and and I, I was there and I saw that, and I it was so cold back there, and I was telling him, hey, we got some pizza over here and stuff, and there was a guy at that festival hanging around my pop up camper who had some moonshine that night, and he had a quart jar of moonshine. And we we were loading up those pizzas and getting ready to go down to the stage, and he was kind of tagging along with us. I said, "You can, you can't come up here with us. I got the backstage pass. You know, you're gonna have just just hang around. We'll be back in a little while, kind of thing." And he said, he handed me that quart jar. It was about three quarters of the way drunk down. It probably you and I had probably hit on that a couple of times. He said, "Here, give Tony this." And I just slipped it in my jacket pocket, and we went on down there. And everything you said about talking to Tony and and, and the pick and all that, and I took your picture, and we shook hands. And I remember when I shook hands with him, his hands felt like ice. They were, they were cold. It was just cold like ice because it was cold. And my hands, I'm sure, felt exactly the same way. Yeah, just, all he had on was just a suit. Yeah, he was wearing a thin a, a suit. Of, a, a pair of dress pants, a white shirt, a tie, and a, and a suit coat. Yeah, and it was... And that's all he had on, and I had on a cap and a, and a white uh, fleece-lined jacket with a blue collar on it or something. It was all turned up, you know? Yeah, and, well, what I remember was after you guys were chit-chatting and I took your picture and stuff, I I've remembered that that mason jar in my 
right coat pocket, and I pulled it out, and I said, it is so cold back here. Would you like a little sip of this right here? And I just handed it to him. He unscrewed that lid off the top, took a little whiff of it, and just, just turned it up and just took a couple of sips, put the lid back on, handed it to you. He said, oh, man, that, that, that really helped. Because <laughs> that will warm you up a little bit. It does thin the blood and increase the circulation. But, so I don't know, you and I later went, after we dropped off the pizzas, we went around to the front of the stage and watched our show and shivering out there and just, just cold. And I think at that point, at that point, I think you gave up and, and you and David, and David was there and you guys decided, well, you'd had enough and you went home. Well, I had to stay the night. So I went back up to the camper after everything wound down and I had to sleep because they were going to do a show on Sunday too. And I went back up to the camper and it was so cold in that camper. And I remember just shivering in that little cheap Walmart sleeping bag, just shivering. And when I got up the next morning, I came out the front door of that little pop-up camper and that little, that little small screen door thing. I popped it open and went out there and the, I had an awning out over one side of the camper. It was about a eight by 10 roll out awning with little poles and stuff, a little sunshade type of thing. That thing was gone. It had blown off the camper in the middle of the night. It was about 50 yards back behind me, just in a pile. And it, it was so cold and muddy. It was, it was like, it wasn't cold enough to freeze the mud. It was just cold. It was about 35 degrees. It'd been raining, but when the front came through, it didn't actually go below freezing. It just hovered right around freezing. And so I left the camper there for two weeks. I didn't come back to get it because I couldn't get my truck in there. It was just a sloppy mess. And so I the old, believe that. The old, I folded it down and put all, you know, fold, put the stove inside and, you know, pushed all the canvas in and cranked it down. And it just sat there in that field over in Fairburn, Georgia for about two weeks. And I would occasionally go over there and ease my way in with that little Mazda pickup truck and see if I could get close enough and I'd be mired up in mud. And I'm like, ah, forget this. I think that that little episode meeting Tony and then backstage, that, that was a highlight of that whole weekend because it was a miserable weekend. Yeah, it was worse. One worse. You could, that wouldn't even enter the fun category at all. Yeah. It was just a miserable weekend. But, but you know what? That makes, that makes for good memories and that was a great time. Uh, there were many, many more. I know we could talk for days and days and weeks about all this stuff, but you know, it's been great all these years, just hanging around and going to some stuff. And I think that, uh, spring is coming and you and I need to plan, uh, you know, some excursions this year and get out and knock around some of the festivals. What do you say there, Ashmore? Well, it's, it, it, there's not that many festivals around anymore. There's not nearly as many as there used to be. Well, that, that is I, true. I, I know that, but, you know, the, the, one of the last ones we went to was a Raccoon Creek. Yeah. And, and we hardly knew anybody there. We ran across 
three or four people that we knew, one being Jim Atkins. Yeah, and, and it rained, and it misted rain the whole time, and we tried to get a pick and go, and, and nothing happened. It was just, wasn't well, so good. But, hey, maybe next time it'll be better. But it would be, it'd be good to go to some of those that old, some of the guys used to go to, but but they, they, they're getting fewer and far between where you can go, and it, you go expecting it to be like it was at the good festivals, you know, and, it, and, it, and I don't think it'll ever be like it used to be. Well, maybe we're just where going... You, go and you know so many people, and, and the energy, you know, all, just about all the entertainers, and, and, and you look forward to seeing all these different people that always showed up at the festivals, and... and uh, uh, I think I think we can just say goodbye to those days. Well, I, if you we know, I kind of disagree. I think what happens is a festival sort of has a life cycle. It you know it grows and it peaks and then it tapers off. I think uh, you know if you go to the same festival over and over and over and over and over, you're going to see it change over time. But I think what we're not doing is going to the new festivals. There are new things going up, and I know you got to kind of hold your nose and get a clothespin put on your nose for some of the music that they're doing, but there's some stuff going on like Del Fest and things that we might not be into everything that's going on, but that's where it's going on. And I think, you know, you, you just got you to gotta stay on the crest of the wave. And some of the things where in that backwash, ah, you know, maybe just not go to that uh, anymore. You know, uh, there's there there is a lot of exciting stuff happening in bluegrass right now, and you and I have not been really going and and scoping those things out. We ought to go. I know we'd have a good time. You and I, I I'll present a challenge to you. We should pack up and go to Dell Fest this year. Go to where? Uh, Del McCurry's Festival. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah. that would probably be, that would probably be good. Oh, I, I can that get you in there. Good. I can get you in. Yeah, well, one of the things that, that to me just really, really, really improves my personal attitude and, uh, you know, personality and stuff is, if I know on a certain date in the future that I'm going to a bluegrass festival, and it could be three months away, but I got it locked in. I've told my wife, I'm going. I got something to look forward to. And when I have that, it's going to be a good time. We're going to have a good time. I don't care what the weather is. I don't care who's playing there. If I decide... I'm going to a festival, and it's on, you know, March the 15th. Well, well, that's it. You know, I got a goal. I got, that's something to look forward to. And we haven't done much of that over the last few years, but I think we ought to. And you know what? 95% of the fun that I have at the festivals doesn't involve playing music. A lot of it is, uh, is listening to the bands, talking to the vendors, Walking around, shooting a breeze with people, just just carrying on, and 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 you, you know, do, you, you can, 
<laughs> Brad, you can you can bring up a festival. You can say, well, let's talk about let's talk about the festival up in Dahlonega, uh, yeah. up on Shoal Creek. You know, Livonia, right? Livonia. You can come up with all kind of things that went on and tales and stories that that happened at that festival. Then you can go to Marietta. And you can you can think of several things that happened out in Marietta. Oh my God, I can think of a lot of things that happened in Marietta. Hey, which brings me, you mentioned Livonia. Go back. We never got to this. We were talking about Eddie, your brother, and his weightlifting. And I don't know if you're at Livonia or Delonica, but we never talked about the incident with the pop-up camper in the middle of the night. Well, it was it was when when we when. When we'd go to to uh, Delonica, we had a pretty good place we'd park. Usually, we had one place that would park at pretty level, and if we didn't get there early enough, then we'd have to park across the street in a little in, a, in another area, which was not level. And and the only way that you could pull your camper is in a certain way. When you when you pulled up and parked, it was off. It was off. Well, it wasn't level. It was leaning a lot. And so when you got the camper in place, then you would have to put jacks under it and blocks under it to jack up one side to get it level. And then you'd have to have about two steps to get up into the camper. <laughs> and then, of course, of course uh, that, that's just that's just the way you had to do it in a pop-up camper, you know, the, the two ends slide outward. Yeah. And when those two ends, big plywood ends slide outward, you've got two uh, probably half-inch rods that are flattened on each end, and they go into the, fit into the, to the bottom of the camper and prop up on the outer end of the of the rollout part, and that supports. It just slips in a little slot on one end of the of the rollout part. Are you following me? Oh yeah, I've I've done that thing a thousand times. So so anybody's got a rollout will know what we're talking about, and and so we had our camper set up that way. And it, and you could, it was very easy just to, it was, it would had it up, jacked up so high, and when the time you slid it back, you could just bend over and walk under it, but you couldn't raise up, you could just raise up part of the way. And it was probably, I would say, four feet off the ground, off the, off the ground, off the, the slide out part. Right, the bed. And that was the end that I slept on. And my buddy slept in the other end, which was off the ground some. And so we had had a long night, and it must have been, it must have been uh, two o'clock in the morning or something like that. And and we had already turned in and got in the bed and was was fixing to go into La La Land, and and we heard this commotion outside. And we didn't know what it was, and all of a sudden, the camper started rocking, and my bunk started going up and down and up and down, and I was, what in the world? And and he said, it was my brother, and 
my nephew that was out there, they had come up and had arrived late, and so they was going to wake us up. So my brother got under the under the <laughs> the rollout part and put his shoulders up underneath, and it started bouncing it up and down. Well, I was afraid that the props were going to slip out of the of their grooves, and if that had happened, the whole end of the camper would have collapsed down, bringing down the the bed and messing up the rollers and the the pop up tent and the whole thing. So I started yelling at my brother to to quit, stop jumping up and down. You're gonna knock it off the jacks, and you're gonna cause this whole thing to collapse. And my brothers replied. <coughs> replied to me to say, well, well, you must have me mixed up with somebody that gives a you-know-what. <laughs> and, and, and he would, and he finally stopped in it, but it's a wonder, it's a wonder that the, that the props didn't come out from under that thing, and the whole thing had fell in and collapsed, but <laughs> didn't seem to bother him one bit, you know. <laughs> well, you got me mixed up with somebody that cares, you know. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, boy. All right, see you, buddy. Bye. All right, see you, bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed those stories and that little conversation with my good pal and pickin' buddy, Buddy Ashmore. Folks, if you like the show and you want to see it continue, you can support the show in a couple of ways. You can tell your friends about the show. Just tell them to go to grasstalkradio.com and they can listen to all catch up and, and listen to the hundred episodes that have gone on so far. Or you can go to bradleylaird.com and purchase some of my instructional materials. Or you can become a Grass Talk Radio supporter and just kick in a little bit of that dough and help keep the process going. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show and I'll talk to you in episode 101. Cause I'm sitting on top of the world And as she's gone, I don't worry Cause I'm sitting on top of the world